and welcome to the Machines and Molecules podcast. Machines and Molecules hosts guests from chemistry, biochemistry and machine learning. And our guest today is Christoph Salai from the company Turbine from Budapest in Ungarn. Hi, Christoph. Hi, Ingmar. Thanks for, thank for having me. How are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you. We're, we're doing just great here in Budapest. Very good. Um, yes. So, uh, as you know, it's not only machines and molecules, but also it's a mystery, a third M word. Which uh, third M word have you brought today? What do you want to talk about? Yeah. So the M word I brought today is mechanism. And because this is something that we, we talk a lot about here at Turbine. Uh, because one, one of the first lessons we've learned when uh, starting doing uh, our simulations and our uh, AI journey in drug discovery is that it's not enough to just give any of your customers a list of good ideas because you need mm -hmm. some way for them to choose from. And we think uh, what we have gotten to is a way to not just give people uh, some good ideas on what proteins uh, should be targeted and maybe what biomarkers, but what really is the underlying mechanism that if you inhibit that protein, what will likely happen in that cell? Mm -hmm. Because that is something uh, that might really help bridging the gap, the translation gap from in vitro to in vivo. So that's something that might still hold, that still could hold much more in patients uh, as mm -hmm. well as, mm -hmm. as just the targets or just some biomarkers themselves. Mm -hmm. Understood. Um, maybe, uh, so you started to talk about turbine. Um, maybe tell me a bit about how it came to, to life. Um, how did it start? So I understand it started from your work in your PhD, probably. Uh, yeah, we, we started it from, uh, basically the, uh, Hungary medical university. Uh, but the idea was that, uh, so maybe just a bit on my background to uh, to give it some perspective. I am I am originally a computer scientist, but I grew a love for biology and ended up having a PhD in biochemistry. And so be because that was always uh, kind of a thing for me to realize realize that quite early on that biochemistry is and biology is a system. It's a very complex system that's hacked together by billions of years of evolution. So it's much harder to understand that the system we ourselves are engineered. Nevertheless, I still believe that the engineering toolkit could be massively useful to understand this system as well. And one way to do that is to actually try uh, to simulate the system, to generate the simulation of at least a small part of the system. And uh, come 2015, uh, we've assembled uh, the founding team uh, with, uh, with my co-founders, uh, Daniel, the Sabi, and Ivan. So we had, we had very diverse background in, in medicine and in business. Because what we really wanted to do is not to write academic papers, uh, about this topic, but make sure that the thing we do, uh, if this is something that's really useful and valuable, 
could impact uh, patient lives as soon as possible. And so to do that in a, say, relatively safe way, as well as a quick enough way, uh, we opted to do go into drug discovery. Because if we help uh, even some big pharma companies figure out how their drugs work, uh, then we've already made our, did a lot of our job and have um, those patients who will ultimately be receiving that drug and getting a better effect out of them. Yes, understood. So uh, it was basically a desire to have an impact with your work. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and this still is. Within the entire turbine, I still think that the shared vision is that we would really want to impact patient lives by rationalizing how drug discovery works. And I think this is, this is something that's shared in the, uh, in the AI drug discovery community because you have seen what uh, the clinical trial machinery is potentially capable of with the COVID vaccine. So that was, that was one year from uh, the start of experimentation to approval. Now, the same thing with cancer drugs takes a decade, uh, usually. And so that's the kind of gap and the same kind of gap in cost that could potentially be uh, brought down. And that wouldn't just make existing drugs cheaper or drug discovery cheaper. It would make us, enable us to bring new kinds of drugs to the market which were previously prohibitively expensive, but maybe with a simulation or machine learning guided process, they are now affordable. So patients whom had no therapy option could receive a, a therapy. And tell us a bit about this idea of simulating a cell. As I understand, simulating the whole cell, all of the mechanisms going on in the cell, that's the, that's the idea behind turbine, right? So what does that involve? Well, yeah, you, you know, so simulating everything, every single protein in the cell, it's massive and honestly unfeasible and ever. Well, well, for the time being, I think. And so what we opted for, and one of the reasons that we started in oncology was that the signaling system inside the cells, so basically the type of system that, uh, the subsystem that tells the cells whether to live or die, uh, and basically responds to the inputs, without doing the actual response, but basically that's the small brain that decides what the cell would do, that's relatively well reserved. So there's actually, there's pretty good information on how, how that system is connected up. And so that was some, that's, that's what we're actually doing. We're simulating the signaling systems behavior and not the, not the entire, not all the mm. DNA methylation and fabrication, not the enzymatic behavior, just the signaling because that tells us what the cell's brain is doing, uh, so to say. Yes, understood. And um, probably it also enables you to then uh, simulate inhibiting a certain part of the signaling pathway and watch what happens afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's the idea because that's, that's where drugs come in or with, with CRISPR technology, we can now very easily do uh, knockouts. So these, these can therefore, can then be simulated. I think one, the hard point in simulations and all of the drug discovery things is not uh, 
learning how one perturbation interacts with the cells, given trading data. It's when you start combining those and figuring out how, when two drugs combined or where, when you have a novel mutation and you add a certain drug to it, how would the cell respond to that? Because, and that's what you need simulations for, because the data you would need to learn it with a standard random forest or black box kind of machine learning is, is just prohibitively massive. It's prohibitively expensive. Mm -hmm. And, but if you can add at least some kind of prior knowledge, like we do with the signaling network, uh, then the system would be able to integrate how these responses uh, may, maybe share some of the communication pathways within the cell. Understood. And uh, when you started out, um, what did you try to sell to pharma companies right away? Did you think of developing your own drug in the beginning? It, It's, it's incredibly hard overall to get into drug discovery. So what was your journey in the beginning? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we, were, we were very, very, very different. Um, so we, we, we started up as a you know, basically a scrappy uh, Hungarian startup before we, before we got uh, Cambridge Investments and all the like that we, uh, we now have. So we basically bootstrapped and We, we got into, uh, actually buyer's accelerator, uh, pretty early on. Uh, that's called, uh, G4A grants for apps. And they gave us our first real projects. And by us being in the Berlin offices there in, there in wedding, uh, they actually all of us are very, Well, not, not unfettered, but a lot of access to very different people from, uh, from the sea level to the actual technicians who have to, have to work with the equipment. And that allowed us to redefine a lot of what pharma is actually interested in. We saw originally we thought two things. Uh, one was that having a simulation, having a good enough simulation could, uh, augment or replace in vitro experimentation. And that would, so we will be able to spare a lot of money from uh, the experimentation because it's to the order of a few hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And then we basically, we went there in Berlin and we basically got loved there because a few hundreds of thousands of dollars is not a thing for big pharma. They're playing with, yeah. with much, much larger numbers there. It's basically yeah. chump change for, for those kinds of, they're, they're spending billions of dollars on a single drug discovery campaign. Uh, so, but what they was interested in, what they were interested in is not us replacing in vitro experimentation, but us figuring out how their drugs work because just, they, they just have, uh, a few hundred cell lines that are actually available from the catalog. And then they have people usually measure their drugs on existing cell lines or do some kind of small scale cell engineering. Now you have CRISPR screens. Uh, but generally you don't have data enough to figure out usually how your drug really works just using the existing data and statistics. And that's where machine learning and the more, these kind of more advanced technologies like our simulations come in. And okay, so, so that was what, uh, that was the new message that, uh, we don't just spare you, uh, 
the cost and time of running in vitro experiments really tell you how your drug works so you can be smarter even when doing uh, your in vitro uh, model selection and everything down the line. There's a, there's a lot of things still down the line after in vitro in, in any kind of pharma project, right? Uh, so that was, that was one lesson learned. And the other was we, of course, started as a, a service company, like I think many of us. Uh, so basically a CRO. And we realized, or maybe better to say we were told that we're actually leaving a lot of uh, value on the table because by giving pharma companies a good idea of how their drugs work or why their drugs work, uh, we're actually generating them tens of millions of dollars in value. And as long as we are uh, getting paid on a cost basis, that's that's not a very powerful method to to capture value and also there is not a it's not a huge more no, novel drugs that are being developed it's a large market but it's not a huge market that you can you can run a large service company out of it um, so we had to uh, we had to use that we have to use that value as much as possible in order uh, for us to grow and be able to better our simulations to to make this really uh, a standard eventually of uh, of the drug discovery process. And and that's when we realized, and that's when we learned that in order to capture more value, you somehow have to have your name written on the drugs beta somewhere. Yeah. And uh, how would you compare this learning curve and the learning experience when founding a company and finding out all these economic things and ecosystem things with doing a PhD. How did that, how did that compare? It's, you know, it's very different. It was, it was a much, much, well, steeper on one hand, but also much more quicker learning process. So there, there's one saying that goes the way to get, uh, 10 years of experience in two years is to found a startup. And I find it kind of very much true. You do, you do kind of work that 10 years in two years as well. But that being said, there's a lot of experience I wouldn't have gained, not even from the PhD, but from starting at, say, a multinational company and going through uh, the career ladder years after years after years. It's a much more slower, balanced, but also low risk uh, as well learning process so so it was it was definitely a, a wide and and there i say fun ride yeah there is there's a certain kind of people who who like that there's a certain kind of people who don't but the interesting thing is that the phd was not worthless so it's it's easy to say going into the industry that the phd is worthless um, i find that it's not entirely so because in our Specifically in, in this kind of field, machine learning and drug discovery, there's a lot of data, a lot of noisy data you have to deal with. So what a PhD teaches you, if you do it right, I think it's not about the degree. It's not about the courses you do. It's about the ways how you can fool yourself into believing you have a hypothesis when you really don't. To learn firsthand all of the potential biases in scientific research or these kind of mistakes. And I think this kind of experience is super helpful because ultimately, since we're now a company, 
uh, our responsibility is for the patients to get a, a, as a good drug as possible. And nature cannot be fooled like, like you could fool yourself. So these kinds of techniques are actually proved very useful in figuring out that we have, we have robust research and a robust pipeline. Yeah, definitely. I think um, what you're talking about here, I think it has two sides, right? Uh, so one side is as a science-based startup, you had to really make sure your stuff works. That's number one. And uh, there it definitely makes sense to, to understand research from the ground up. But also on the other hand, there's the business thinking where you can also easily fool yourself and maybe you hit upon something that works, um, but it's much better to go about it with a scientific mind mindset and say, okay, I'll find out how this business stuff works and not like, okay, it's, it's like this and um, that's what I'm going to do and uh, I'll be successful with it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe I would add that just the scientific mind alone is not enough. So we, we had to have uh, Sobi uh, with, uh, with the business background, who is our CEO. Mm. Because now I just recall these, these kind of fun stories that uh, he started bombarding us with stuff that we need to do business development and customer development. Mm. And we had just zero, zero idea what those mean. Uh, and these, these were stuff that coming out from the academia or even in the engineering world, this is stuff that business folks do. And um, we, we don't really know what's it, but, but it's something. And, it, and it's super important. Like it's, it's one of the most important things you can do, even uh, for uh, the technically minded, because this ensures that you are building something that actually has value, that people actually need, because otherwise you're, you're just doing the same thing and you're building stuff for yourself. And that's not yeah. the goal. So we, we have had to learn those as well. We, we needed that, that kind of knowledge. That definitely. And of course, the scientific mindset also doesn't, doesn't help in um, portraying this um, self-confidence that people sometimes use as a stand-in when, when they can't really judge whether what you do makes sense or not. They judge you by, by taking a look at, okay, is this person self-confident? then probably what they're doing makes sense, right? And as a scientist, you always go like, yeah, it could be like this, but it also could be like this. So we have to test it. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, understood. Um, would, you, would you say um, there are some other very promising trends that uh, were a surprise to you um, in, in recent years in machine learning and in the life sciences? Well, I think I, I, was, I was actually super excited to hear about, to see AlphaFold working. So that was that, mm. that's, I think, one of, the, one of the big things nowadays. Mm. And well, the, in the machine learning world, the entire change the transformer model transformer system is, is something that's that's exciting and that's what actually allowed not just alpha fold but chat gpt and a lot of lot of the revolution and there to mm. to unfold and what's surprising is that it's not really a scientific insight it's just a way to be able to train more and surprising, it, it's surprising how simple it is on the outset. Of course, there are a lot of complications when, when you start going inside, but how, how simple is it from the outset that it, it, it just actually worked. Uh, 
And yeah. and so I think I, for all, I, I found this very exciting and it gained very rapid adoption. I was, I was surprised that uh, they basically com- published a conference article uh, and then thereafter, it's now standard for companies to say that, well, if, if you want to uh, get the molecule for your protein, uh, you can either give us a crystal structure or at least an alpha fold fold and we can work with that. And I think that's, but, well, it's your field more than, than mine, but I imagine that it uh, has revolutionized or would revolutionize drug discovery. It's for sure uh, one thing that gains a lot of interest and a lot of attention. That's that's very clear. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And would you say would you say somebody like did you always have in mind founding a company or did that come at a certain point? Did you did you have somebody who pushed you in that direction? Something I always had in mind was that. I would like to be as successful as my ideas are, uh, which which was a starting point, but not necessarily towards a company. I think I think the the breaking point really came uh, when uh, when I got faced with uh, the basically the publication pressure uh, from the academia and how. Uh, basically, I, so I, I don't want this to, to devolve. So I, I don't want this podcast to devolve into rent. So I just say it as uh, simply as possible. Or as, uh, so basically, the incentive structures with all the grants are set up to prefer uh, low risk, uh, low reward experimentation and publication. Mm-hmm. So having a steady stream of low or medium impact publication is better uh, for mm-hmm. many purposes than, than going, for, going for the moon. And I've, I've always felt that's not for me. That's, that's not for us to do. Uh, but, but also I was in a, uh, I was in a university of life sciences and as, as an engineer. So, so it was basically interesting, an interesting setup. And I always found that, uh, when a scientist uh, gets a life scientist gets into a lab and and has to work on something. The first thing that they are being told is uh, these are the, this is this is the equipment we have. Let's see what new things you can figure out using existing equipment. And the kind of thing, uh, the way or at least my way of thinking was uh, the inverse. Maybe because my background is engineering, so I'm. I should be the one who build those tools, who have built those tools, or who would be building those mm-hmm. tools. That first, let's figure out what the big question is, and then when you have the big question, you have to figure out what kind of tools do you need to achieve that. Maybe you can do with existing tooling, maybe you don't, and you can be, have to build that tooling. But you don't necessarily have to limit yourself to questions that could possibly be asked. But maybe shoot for those which really interest you, and then figure out a way to get there. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that's more more a company and the platform building way than than an academic research way. Yeah, maybe. Um, also, maybe one of the other reasons is that uh, tools are just so super expensive in life sciences, and so people are trying to make best use of them. Oh, of course. But, uh, but what you mention is also very interesting that you say, well, for several reasons, it's better to be conservative and get incremental results. 
there, there's an interesting uh, book about DARPA, the um, defense research organization in the US, which has spurred many innovations in the US and it compares it to the National Science Foundation. And it says exactly what you just said, that NSF funded projects tend to be very incremental and rather conservative, also um, judged by a peer group, whether they will go through and so on and so forth. So it, it pays off to be conservative to get through. Um, whereas DARPA projects are defined by the goal and then you develop the tools to get to that goal, um, yeah. which has spurred much, um, much more, uh, much higher innovation jumps, basically, the book argues. There, there is actually a great book on that. I, I don't know whether uh, uh, you know about that. It's called Loon Shots with an L. Yes. At the end. yes. And uh, while so sometimes that book is a bit overbearing, uh, in many cases, there, there are a lot of very interesting stories about the development of statics, the development of the radar, which just, mm -hmm. just based on this, uh, just those stories are, uh, could potentially be worth the read. And it says, it really said, talks about building a, for, for this kind of science, building a very flat organization. So at least some of those lessons uh, we've been trying to take to mind as well. Yes, it's a great book. And uh, it, also, it also emphasizes a lot the feedback loop um, between the scientists and engineers and the actual application, right? Because um, yeah, you could cool. stay in an ivory tower and develop something because you think it's cool, but then nobody's interested in it. So if you have the constant feedback loop, uh, that makes a lot of sense to drive innovation that really propels the world forward, basically. Right, right. Mm. And uh, did you have did you have a mentor that um, that that pushed you a lot like in academic in academic times or maybe later on during uh, company building uh, well you know, I wouldn't wouldn't want to name one single one because I have had a, a, a lot of great um, supervisors and mentors uh, during the time so maybe maybe one one person to name was would be my would my, my PhD supervisor. Uh, mm -hmm. He's called Peter Chermay, and he was uh, one of the uh, largest folks in the Hungarian network science community. And but basically, what he did was I think it's very different from how how many. Uh, life sciences labs work. Uh, mm -hmm. So he was, he's very he's a very hands off supervisor in in some ways, but uh, it basically he basically gave us the freedom to we we really needed to uh, start this and ha have the time to figure uh, figure this entire thing out. And he was uh, he was supporting us uh, from the university even in the first years when. Uh, when we started and spun off and, and left the university. But I, I kind of, because a, a kind of pattern that tends to happen in some times uh, with PhD students is that they have a very fixed thing to do uh, because it, it's a big lab with, with huge names 
And so work is on a very tight schedule. And but that means that in many cases, uh, the PhD student is not being responsible, not really understand the big picture of what they are working on. And so that's kind of uh, and by doing that, you're, you we will be doing interesting research, but you kind of miss out the main lessons of PhD of figuring it out yourself. And so I think by us by us having this freedom, uh, he really he really enabled this company to uh, to start up. Hmm. Understood. Is that a lesson that you also apply to leading people now? As a manager, uh, well, it's a different world. freedom. So yes, but to not the same degree. We, I still think that being aware of the big picture is maybe more important than uh, what the exact instruction of your task is, because mm. in many in many ways, no no one can word the exact zero ticket. As, as well as it's necessary or can can figure out all the corners for you, you have to understand what we're working for. That that's something I'm very big on, and I I'm advocating that you should you should understand that we're not that much hands off. We have a, we have a roadmap, we have goals, uh, but the way you achieve those goals, we are trying to uh, give as much freedom as possible because ultimately. Uh, the goals are coming from what we see in the market, but the way to get to those goals, ultimately they know better because that's yeah. that's why we hire them. Yes, of course. Yes, and also it's it's a different time, right? PhD time is a time of exploration, whereas building something when you know what's going to be useful um, to people, that's, that's a different uh, phase you're in right now. Yeah. Yes. Um, what advice would you give someone who's just starting out in the field of either life sciences or machine learning? Well, first, I think to do it because because we, we need more people uh, on the field. Uh, and but maybe maybe the other thing is to biology is not that hard. I think I, so I can I can speak for machine learning folks who are, who are trying to get, for example, into biotechnology. And for and what I found in the company that machine learning is scary for biologists and biologists scary for ML engineers or basically any engineer. Mm -hmm. And it is not so. Uh, so yes, biology is super scary and super hard to understand 100%. Uh, mm -hmm. But the training wheels you can figure out in, I think, in both fields, uh, relatively easily. I'd, I'd say that the, the basic understanding of biology, of, of how cells work, uh, you can uh, you can learn in a few weeks, and that's enough to get by. And then uh, you will you will learn the rest as you go along, or you can learn the rest as you go along. And the, basically the same goes with, with machine learning. Uh, so if you're, if you're a life sciences person who, want to, who wants to get into machine learning, you don't really need to be scared about that. Even, even if you don't want to code at all in your life, which I think it's uh, less and less a feasible proposal as, as time goes on. Uh, yeah. But that being said, I think if, if you work in a company like this, even if you, if you don't code at all, just the basics of statistics is something that would be, would be very useful in your research. 
because a data scientist actually does much, much more experimentation uh, with data, with different data sets than what you can do in a wet lab. Just because the frequency you get those data and the frequency you get to run those tests are, are much, much higher. So basic yes. tenets of data science are really just the basic tenets of any science. And, yeah. and that's very useful to understand. Machine learning folks may call it overfitting. Uh, and in life sciences lingo, we call that p-hacking. But it's basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Super. Thank you, Christoph, uh, for being a guest on Machines and Molecules. Uh, it was a very nice chat. And uh, I hope to see you again at a conference soon. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Bye-bye.